Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man on the right side sitting in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly and Emily today. Chaos. It's chaos. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Hallelujah. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Raises the question of why are we all here today, right? It's a very weird way to end the gospel story. They said nothing to anyone and they went out because they were afraid then how did he come to write this down? Then how did this come to be known? Now, this is the best part of the sermon to say that scholars, eh, <laughs> see, that's what everybody wants to hear on Easter. Scholars, uh, scholars debate much about what the true ending of Mark is. Now, if you have a Bible, it probably has one ending. It might have two endings in it. One longer ending, um, which is uh, now normally put into italics italics in our Bibles and said not on the earliest manuscripts. There's also a shorter ending that comes later in time. There's a shorter ending to the Gospel of Mark. But what happens is most of them either come to one of two conclusions. One, the ending of Mark has been lost to us. We have two endings that scribes have added because one, it's weird to end with. And the woman said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Or um, that, the, um, that this is the intended ending. That the writer of Gospel of Mark is writing to communities out there in the world that know that Jesus has raised from the dead. They experience his presence in their worship and in their daily lives and where they are. And so the, the ending is there meant to spur us on into it. Meant to spur us on into living into the resurrection life in which Christ has promised us. But it's a very weird way to end a gospel nonetheless. Even the, the, the Greek construction of the final word is like nothing ends that way except for one sentence in Genesis. Um, but I think for us, it's important to look at the idea in which these women have gone out 
to anoint a body that was dead. They've gone forth to a tomb. And so for us too, as we come together on Easter worship, we, if we're experiencing the story in our lives, we come out to be surprised by the unexpected. That where there was a tomb, where there was death, and where there was emptiness, something has overcome that. And that he is not there, but that he is going ahead of us into Galilee. Now, one of the questions I I like to ask on Easter Sunday is, is it makes a lot of difference. I I think my RIP is funny. Um, uh, uh, Whether you think someone is dead or alive. It makes a lot of difference if you think someone is dead or alive. Luke Timothy Johnson says, most notably to them, which I think is an important thing to remember too, um, it makes a difference to them if you think that they are dead or alive. And what happens on Easter Sunday is is that there are many for us in our daily lives, Christian or not, in which we begin to live as if Jesus is a relic of the past. That the truth of what happened on that day may be true or not, but we live as if this is something long gone. But what the gospel asks and what the New Testament proclaims for us is that we don't study him and look at him or relate to Christ as one who is dead, We relate, we know, we live, we breathe, we pray, we witness, we go to the least of these, we hear the stories as he is one who is alive. And it makes all the difference in how you appreciate this. One of the places that we proclaim he is alive, some people are visiting today, is that we, um, at Defiance, we center our worship around the table, not around the music team, not around the preacher, not around anything else but the table in which Christ is alive and meets us there, and we proclaim his presence until he comes again. So it makes some difference on whether you think somebody is dead or alive. And as we walk out to this grave on Easter morning, it makes a difference for us as we come to this place to where Christ is dead or alive. And so those words from the ending, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing because they were afraid. They go out fleeing a tomb, which is an interesting way to think about how you can relate to this event. Leaving, fleeing a tomb. Fleeing this. Now, one of the things is, is some of you have these already. Uh, some of the kids in kids' church will take them home today. We have these copies of the Gospel of Mark uh, on the table uh, right next to uh, the waters of baptism, which we remember our baptism together. But one of the things that Mark is trying to say with this ending, and it's the spiritual way of reading, uh, is to say, read the gospel again when you finish it, but read it slowly. Because what's become clear in these last moments is, is everybody is not worth imitating except for Christ in this gospel. And so as we watch those who have followed him, It's important for us to read it again and follow him again. So these are uh, available on the table. You can just take one and bring it home. And and Rosie and I have done artwork on the alternate page. I did not bring mine today, so I did not have to bear the shame of of her artwork being better than mine sometimes. But uh, it is what it is. But if you're interested in reading through the Gospel of Mark, there's that way in which we get to the end, and it spurs us back to reading it again. Because the first scenes come from Galilee as well. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. Go back to the beginning and learn what it means to follow. And the classic image for the Gospel of Mark, this one on the way. That's 
what the believers in, in Mark are often doing. They're following him on the way. And so in some sense, the ending is saying, go back to the beginning and follow him on the way again. There's lots of ways to organize an Easter sermon, but today I'd, I'd like to walk through just Mark's story, um, the eight verses that sort of proclaim this for us today. Um, there are some years where I try to capture all of what the resurrection means in a sermon, and it's, I love it. It's, it's kind of its unique, beautiful sort of train wreck slash chaos, um, because there are so many, what we heard from Isaiah that Isis read for, Isa read for us about um, uh, that he is setting a new feast, that he is wiping every tear, that he is redeeming everything that is there. We get other portions of the New Testament that proclaim that this is the death of death. We get uh, other portions in which this is the radical act in which believers participate in their new creation lives. There are so many different ways of going about this, but because uh, here we've been walking through Mark since the beginning of New Year, I'm going to try my best. I'm preachers, we cheat as we do. Um, uh, we're not saints, after all, but um, uh, trying to, to stick with what Mark says. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm throwing out the first quote I have um, because of that. I just wanted to say, <laughs> uh, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they go anoint the body of Jesus. The women in Mark's gospel have, have hung around the cross much longer than all the male disciples have. They've sort of been nearer to him. Um, but even they, when they go out on Easter morning, they go out to anoint a dead body. Well, they may have remained closer to him in his final moments than the male disciples have. The abandonment of not believing that he will be the risen one strikes all of them. They go because they know where the body is laid to anoint it as if he was dead. Interestingly enough, further in Mark's gospel, he's anointed by an anonymous woman where it said um, the church will remember what she has done. And he says that anointing, when the woman washes his feet with oil and tears, is the anointing for his death. He is one who has been already anointed for his death. And so they come expecting to be able to anoint him. And they're walking, and like I said at the beginning, it's interesting to walk towards a grave expecting for somebody to be dead, expecting for this body to be there, for them to be able to, to bring the spices to it and anoint it for proper burial. And in, in Jewish burial rituals, they're within the proper time to be doing that. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. This is one of those amazing teachings that we often miss as modern people because Sunday has been Sunday for so long. This was Sunday before this. But, but the idea is, is that the worshipers that uh, Jesus had, had amassed around him, who had followed him in his ministry, were Jews who honored the Sabbath. Everything was oriented towards Saturday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that their whole orientation of life and worship, their days of the week, in classic um, uh, Jewish understanding, there's almost this way in which you spend three days after the Sabbath resting and that it was good, and then you spend three days preparing for the Sabbath, which for anybody who's tried to Sabbath, that sounds about right. You do need to do three days of work focused to rest on that one day. We intuitively are not resters in today's world. We just work every day. Um, but that's it. And then I don't know if any, this is a side note, but we need vacations after our vacation often when you talk to people. You say, how is vacation? Oh, I need a vacation. Um, we can't rest or do anything in, in, in that way. But what happens, and very early on for the church, 
The notion that Christ has been raised changes their whole orientation towards sacred time. Very early on the first day of the week. It's almost like this eighth day, day of new creation, is, is some of the ways that people will talk about it. That, that creation has been renewed because of that event. That there is a new week, a new way to go about. And so early on in church history, the, the Christians slowly begin shifting from Saturday worship from the synagogue, and they're, they're kind of kicked out, and they're kind of annoying, and they're kind of, there's lots of reasons why they leave the synagogue, but they quickly start worshiping on Saturdays, proclaiming it as the, or Sundays, proclaiming it as the Lord's day. And it's this just after sunrise that they go at the time just after the darkest that isn't just a detail that I think is like, oh, they got up early. But it's to say that while it was still dark, they went to the tomb and light burst forth. That they went to that place. And while they were on the way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will, will, who will, <laughs> who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? It's a very important question because this stone is very large and there's just three of them. There's a hint of faith in that they've gone expecting that somehow we'll be able to roll away the stone in front of the tomb. But I think what's, what's interesting here, and this is one of those um, classic images of, of the Christians believe in the empty tomb, although I, I, I love, I was reading uh, Bart this week as I do, is he said that Christians uh, believe in the empty tomb, but that they really believe in is the living Christ. The empty tomb proclaims for us that he's not there, but it doesn't do all the work of proclaiming he's alive. But they go, and, and this is almost like a lament. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Who will allow us to anoint the body of our Lord? Who will take the hindrance, and this is important for us to remember, is take the hindrance from the one who is dead so that we can anoint him. What happens next proclaims that the hindrance between death and life is not broken or moved by us. It's not ten of us who roll the stone away. But it is Christ, or in a different gospel, the angel, but it is on God's side in which the tomb is opened. That the boundary that they're asking about, the boundary between life and death, is not in the end broken by us, but is broken from God's side where God has gone to death and raised to new life. This is where the early Christians, uh, Athanasius gets this teaching, um, that the early Christians were not as entirely fearful of death. It's something we've lost today. Um, it's, it's incidentally falls on the pastor to remind people that they're going to die, um, uh, which is not the Easter news that I'm sure you came for. But the point being is that we live our lives limitlessly in a way that we don't acknowledge we're going to die. But the early Christians quite aware of that because they believed they had participated in the death of Christ in their baptisms, that the bound had been broke from the other side. And so Athanasius has this way of saying that if you saw children playing with a lion, you would assume that the lion was dead. And what he's saying there is that while Christians play around death, 
They meet in the catacombs. They rejoice in the death of their saints and martyrs. They rejoice in that way. Bonhoeffer, uh, who's a, a Nazi dissident who dies in prison, incidentally in April, I forget what anniversary it was, but dies in prison. When he is, is released, he says, this is but for me the beginning of life. The Christians look at death as if it is dead, that they can be near the lion. Who will roll away the entrance of the stone? Um, who will roll that away? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away, that the bound had been broken before they had even got there, that this had been moved, this barrier had been crossed, that, that the life that was sealed in that tomb could not be contained within death, but is able to break forth. Now, this is perhaps one of the, the more interesting parts of the, the sermon I guess, which is like, who are you to say that? We get to judge later. Um, I think it's one of the more interesting parts of what I have to say today. They saw a young man dressed in white in a robe sitting on the right side. They get to the tomb and they see a young man in a white robe sitting on the right side. Now, most people say this is an angel, which I uh, agree with, that this is an angel who is sitting there in light, who's there to announce this. And in the various gospels, these details... um, change little, uh, some more angels, some on the outside, some on the inside, which is to say that um, awe might be one of the things that characterize this moment, so much so that was like counting was not at the highest point of your mind. Um, uh, that's, that's, yeah, they, they take it in in a different way. But earlier in the gospel, on the night in which Jesus is taken, there's this other phrase, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized them, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, in Mark's Greek, this word young man only appears twice. It appears here with this one who flees naked at the moment in which Jesus is taken, an unnamed disciple or an unnamed character in the book of Mark. Some modern scholars, because we get to have more fun with the text, proclaim that this is the reader in the text. The reader, us, while we were not there, it's saying you too would flee, and you would flee in the shame, which the shame of the ancient time of nakedness, that you would flee in this way. Interestingly enough, linen is another Greek word that's used identically in the, between these two passages, is to say that you will... Um, the, the, the linen in which he lost has been regained in the other one, that, that the young man sitting dressed in a white robe, linen, is the same as this one, that, that a linen garment was uh, the man who flees naked. Why I bring this up is because I think what the gospel, the resurrection truth, what we proclaim here, names for us that in our shame in our nakedness, in our exposure, in the ways in which we run away, we are reclothed again through what Christ does for us. And so often, I think this is, is um, we talk about the shame and the exposure of, and it's still true today. I mean, I've never had the dream, but people who, who wake up and they dreamed about going to school or naked or something like that, that there's a lot of shame around this still. And it's not just the shame of, um, it's Adam and Eve in the garden, that, that after they eat the fruit, they notice that they're naked. And it's not just uh, sexual shame. It's not even mainly that. It's exposure. And that as people being exposed, 
there's this tendency to think there is no hope from there. There's, we're all bound in the worst exposure we've had. There is no other hope. Sometimes we carry that in ourselves as well. The young man who flees from Jesus naked, flees from him who is light and life, God eternal, but on Easter morning is reclothed again. And that's one of the truths that we come to on Easter. It's, it's, when he says, go ahead, um, the man in the tomb to them, he, to tell the disciples and Peter, Peter is another one whom the last we heard of Peter in the gospel, he has denied Jesus three times, uh, the cock crows which Jesus had predicted, and he breaks down and weeps. The young man also knows that knowing that he is being reclothed from his shame, as he instructs the women to go and to tell the disciples, especially Peter, that it is for Christians not to be the ones to see people bound in their shame, because it's almost a denial of resurrection hope. That the God who has reclothed us, which we fight, <laughs> the man doesn't voluntarily do this, he leaves the garden in fear. We are reclothed and reconstituted ourselves. And part of our mission as we witness to this truth is to say that there are others who need this news as well. That though he is not here, he is risen. And that is the news we get to share and we honor today too. For myself, uh, it's great preaching this long from one of my exposure times because it's much more emotional. But for myself in those exposure times, to have other people who reclothe you at that moment is nothing more than hope and good news and joy. Proclaims that death does not have the final word, that shame does not have the final word, that these things in which you thought you were bound to are not, in fact, what you are bound to, but there is new life. And so does Christ as he breaks these bounds of death, he creates new creation, he sets a new feast, he renews the world, a new day has dawned, doesn't just make the big things big, but he, he clothes us again. And this is, in, in, for the early church, incidental of baptism language again, that they would be stripped naked, they would go into the waters and then be reclothed on the other side. That we become new people through our participation in Christ and new people in process. <laughs> Um, because some of us have known Christians, and it's like, kind of. Um, <laughs> we're working towards that truth which God knows us as, as reconstituted and made. This is one of my favorite sentences in this passage, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. And they were alarmed, rightfully so. And what the young man proclaims to them is, don't be alarmed. It's a classic phrase you'll see from, uh, it it's, comes from Frederick Buechner, a uh, famous writer, but you'll see it in other places that it, he says, I think he says this is the resurrection, is that this is the world, terrible things will happen, beautiful things will happen, don't be afraid. But that's his way of, of capturing it, is, is that the, they come to a crucified body, which is its own form of terror. Christian hope of the resurrection doesn't deny that terrible things will happen. Two proclaims that beautiful things will happen. And the mission for them and for us is to not be
be afraid, to not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lead, led, uh, laid him. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, this particular individual who was crucified, who died this death. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This, friend, this image from my friend John Jay, I think I use it almost every year, but I, I love the way in which it captures what the angel is saying at this moment is look at an absence. Look where there is nothing. See where they laid him. See where there is not a body. And through the circle being called to like look at the circle, you see the beauty and the good news that comes out of that. See where they laid him. He is not here. He is risen, which paints the edge of the circle, but you're being asked to look at something that's, that's not there. It's there in the sense you can look at where he was laid, but he's not there. Look at the empty space and know that he is risen. This absence is, is an interesting way in which we are inspired towards faith. But go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is going back to where this journey began. He's going there to meet them in the spot in which they were first at again. And the proclamation, he's going ahead of you. Christians follow Jesus. He is going ahead of us always in our daily lives, in our work, and in our play, in our mission to, to reclothe people in the world. In the proclamation that he is risen, he is always ahead of us, just as he told us. And so it is for us to follow him, to go on the road ourselves. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid, um, which obviously they didn't, because here we are on this morning hearing that good news all over again. But the gospel ends with that way in which it asks us to, to say, um, it makes a difference whether you think he's dead or alive. It makes a difference because he is going ahead of us into the place. Now, as many of you know, I have a... Um, challenging relationship, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, with Easter sermons, that I think that most of them stink, um, mine included, um, because we so often say so much and we miss the good news of what has happened and fail to capture so much of what has been done. So I cheat every year, and I read a sermon that's about 1,600 years old that's read in many churches on this day so that I know that whatever failures I've produced, at least the church has said somebody did it right. There's a quote from it on the back of the bulletin, um, but I'll read it now. It's from John Christosom. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Are there any who are grateful servants? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Are there any weary with fasting? Let them now, fasting, let them now receive their wages. If any have toiled from the first hour, let them receive their due reward. If they have come after the third hour, let them with gratitude join in the feast. And he that arrived after the sixth hour, let him no doubt 
for he shall too sustain no loss. And if any delayed to the ninth hour, let him not hesitate, but let him come too. And he who arrived only at the eleventh hour, let him not be afraid of any reason for his delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him that comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him that toiled from the first. To this one he gives, upon another he bestows, he accepts the works as he greets the endeavor. The deed he honors and the attentions he commands, let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike, receive your reward, rich and poor rejoice together, sober for and slothful, celebrate the day. You who have kept the fast and you who have not, rejoice for the table is richly laden. Feast royally on it, the calf is a fattened one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake all of the cup of faith. Enjoy the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar even as it tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold it when he said, you, who, you, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It was an uproar, for it is annihilated. It is an uproar, for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is arisen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having been the risen from the dead, is to become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. God, today we come oftentimes as we do to visit a tomb, to see where death has reared its ugly head again, to see where it has tried to consume and take and bind from us, to see it in our shame and in our disrobement and in our nakedness. And in the good news of today, what is naked is reclothed. What is dead is now alive. What was there laying in the grave is now empty. And so we are invited into this resurrection life, this day of new creation, the Sabbath of a new dawn, of a new day, in which we follow you. You go ahead of us through death and into new life. And so we follow you too through the death and our baptisms and into new life ourselves. It is all for this truth that we are Easter people. Alleluia is our song. Praise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.